Okay, so today's episode is a bit different. You're about to hear the story of one of the world's most notorious whistleblowers, from her perspective. But you won't hear her voice. You can't. This woman isn't allowed to talk to us, because right now she's in a high-security military prison. She's serving 35 years for the biggest leak of military information in US history. She's just 28 years old, but she's already endured months in solitary confinement and is due to spend most of her adult life in prison. Her name is Chelsea Manning. Let's rewind to 2009 for a second. Chelsea, or as she was then known Private Bradley Manning, was serving in the US Army in Iraq as a military analyst. Disturbed by some of the actions of US forces and their allies, Chelsea made a decision that would have huge consequences. It would see her imprisoned, isolated, and sacrificing decades of her future. She blew the whistle. Today, Chelsea will tell you about who she is as a person, what she's been through, and what her life is like now. You're listening to In Their Own Words, a podcast series from Amnesty International that aims to get behind the headlines and hear from iconic human rights activists firsthand. Since Chelsea is in military prison, barred from recording with us, actress Michelle Hendley is lending Chelsea her voice for this episode. I consider my home to be in the D.C. suburbs of Maryland. That's Potomac, Rockville, Bethesda, and Silver Spring. But Crescent, Oklahoma is the town that I lived in when I was very young. Crescent is a very small town, probably hovering either just above or below a thousand people for the last 30 or so years. Right down the middle of it, there is about a mile or so long Main Street with a few old original Victorian-era buildings, either occupied by businesses or abandoned. The rest of the town is, and has been for as long as I can remember, mostly just streets with small houses or trailers. There's also a lot of churches, and I do mean a lot. I wouldn't dare try and give you an estimate as to the number. The people of Crescent are often very friendly. Most of the people that lived there when I was growing up had been there for most of their lives. I would say that it is not uncommon for there to be kids, and sometimes even adults, who had never left the state of Oklahoma. It's really just another one of those stereotypical everybody-knows-everybody-else kind of towns that crisscrosses the whole Midwestern portion of the United States. The portions that people, like myself sometimes, call the flyover territory between the coasts. My life was pretty rough. We lived in a small two-story house about three or so miles northwest of the center of Crescent. For about half of my time there, I lived with both of my parents and my sister. After my sister graduated school in the mid-90s, she moved out, coming back occasionally to live for short periods of time. My father traveled a lot, mostly business trips for the international company he worked for. So for a lot of my childhood, I spent time either with my sister or my mother. Unfortunately, both my parents drank heavily, and they could both get erratic and abusive. My sister helped me with that a lot, though. She was a great role model for me at a difficult time. I didn't have a lot of options and opportunities for interaction with people growing up. So I naturally gravitated to computers because they were available to me when my mother was drunk, or my father was away, or my sister wasn't at the house. 
I think my father allowed me on the computers as a replacement for him. So I used them as kind of a babysitter and parent, something to do without another person available. By 1997, when I was 9 and 10 years old, I was exploring the internet a lot more and began to hard-code my own websites and put up useless information and facts on them. This was around the time that I started using IRC chat rooms and began to communicate with other people on the internet for the first time as well. I was driven by a combination of curiosity and loneliness more than anything else. I remember not having anyone available to me to help with my feelings. Like, when I was about eight, I confessed to a school counselor that I didn't know why I wanted to play with the girls, or play games like hopscotch or whatever. I felt lonely and strange, and I needed support. But she didn't know what to do or say, other than something along the lines of, boys are different than girls, and girls do these things while boys do these other things. It was like there was nothing in between. I didn't understand what was going on at all. I didn't have the words to describe it. I just remember crying a lot and feeling weird. I felt like a freak. Other kids would pick up on things that I didn't quite understand. They would tease me a lot. Hey, girly boy, you're so faggy. You talk like a girl. You walk like a little girl. You cry a lot. You're so gay. It was a constant reminder of how different I was and how little I understood the way people perceived me. I spent a lot of time trying to get into my sister's room. There was an arms race with locks. First, she installed a hook and latch to keep me from opening the door, but I would just get a stick to lift it up. She raised it, so I got a bigger stick. Then she put on a simple lock, so I learned how to pick it. Then I remember Dad put an actual lock on the door, and I struggled for weeks to pick that lock. Eventually, though, I figured out how to get in. There wasn't a whole lot to it, really. I would just play with her old toys, like Barbie dolls from the 1980s, and played with her clothing and stuff. I remember how neat and tidy she kept the room, and I wanted to be able to decorate my own room like she did. It was a very typical setup for a teenager in the 1990s. She had a Rubik's Cube and a lava lamp and black and white polka dot sheets. I played in her acid-washed jeans and leather jacket. By the time I was about 15, I was in a spiral of denial. I was struggling a lot, so I would choose to ignore it. But I couldn't ignore it. I would spend weeks ignoring these feelings and then splurge on them. I lived in southwest Wales in the UK back then, and I would buy makeup and girls' clothes at a thrift store, sneaking around like a kid trying to buy cigarettes or alcohol underage. I would wear this stuff for a bit and then throw it in a dumpster down the street in the orange glow of the streetlights on misty nights. Then I would repeat the cycle a few weeks later. My inner thoughts were just unhealthy. Internalized repeats of the taunts and bad advice from earlier in my life. You're a freak. Nobody loves you. You're such a girly weirdo. Man up. These were tough times for me, certainly. I started talking to my friends before I moved to Wales from Oklahoma. I was mostly just asking questions like, is it normal for me to feel like I'm a girl or that I'm attracted to guys? Does anyone else feel compelled to wear a girl's clothing on occasions? But it would end in disaster for me. People would be shocked by the questions, and I would suffer the consequences of my honesty and the rumors and slander that I would hear in school in the days following. I would deny everything and go into hiding for a couple weeks until everybody forgot. 
So it turns out these reactions would keep me in the closet for a very long time, especially for people who were closest to me. But when I was more anonymous, online or far away from home in a city or while traveling on the train or bus, then I felt more comfortable, to be honest, and to explore my identity. I could be anyone I wanted to be online. The rules of the world didn't seem to apply. In that era, you identified yourself as a handle and your ASL, age, sex, and location. You didn't have to be honest. I could be 16, female, and from Houston, Texas. Or I could be 24, male, and from London, England. It required a lot of imagination and a discipline for creating consistency if you were trying to be convincing to an online crowd. I was more myself than I could ever be in IRL, in real life, as it was described online. I was running away from the world that I lived in and experienced every day. I often felt like a stranger or like an observer in my daily life. Sitting in my room at night, illuminated by the light of the monitor in the dark, I felt like I could type my innermost thoughts and feelings to people that I didn't know in a completely made-up universe. It was a universe where you could be anyone that you ever wanted to be. It was both a fascinating and liberating experience for me growing up. Although there wasn't a huge trans community presence on the internet yet, during the early 2000s, searching the term transgender would still get you a lot of pornography sites, but there was a thriving gay community, which I was able to identify with and feel at home talking to. I made a lot of friends online. These were people I knew very intimately, even without knowing their names or what they looked like. The early internet was a very powerful anonymizer. The first time I passed as a woman in public was while I was on leave from my deployment to Iraq in 2010. I was dressed in a casual gray business suit jacket and skirt with a white blouse, black tights, business shoes, and a faded purple coat. It was really cold outside. I just kind of wandered about in public. I went to coffee shops and bookstores and just tried to blend in as a bored woman looking for something interesting to do. And I was amazed at how much it worked and how human and normal that it felt for me. I didn't have the confidence before, and I never would have done such a thing before being deployed to the combat zone of Iraq, but I felt that it went pretty amazing. I was very disappointed to have to leave. After leaving the UK in 2005, I moved in with my father and his new wife at the time. I was starting to explore my sexuality like a normal teenager should, but his wife really didn't like me and didn't like the fact that I even existed and we had many disputes. After she called the police on me, I left the house and didn't really have anywhere to go. So I borrowed my father's small red pickup truck and wandered around the Midwest for a few months and settled in Chicago for the summer. It was a very annoying experience for me. Volunteer homeless shelters were very anti-gay and anti-trans and required you to attend prayer ceremonies, so I avoided those. I ended up sleeping in the truck a lot. Every other night, I would wake up with a flashlight in my face. I would squint at a police officer or a sheriff's deputy with the red and blue flashing lights of a police car behind them. Sometimes they would start yelling at me, pulling me out the car. They would yell things like, don't move, freak, or give me a reason to shoot you, scumbag. I would sometimes sit in handcuffs behind me on the curb of a street or the dewy grass of a drainage ditch and get questioned on whether I had any warrants out for my arrest or if I had drugs, or if I was soliciting for prostitution, or whatever. I was just a street kid to them. But 
After every time of harassment, whether minutes or hours, they would let me go. I expected to go to jail for something eventually, but I didn't. Unfortunately, it's a typical experience for many queer and trans youth even today. I was really starting to struggle with my gender identity in the spring of 2007, and I even started seeing a therapist to talk about it, but I never had the courage to talk to her about my struggle. I was very lonely and afraid. The war in Iraq was entering the troop surge that summer, and it was on television every night. I started to wonder about whether or not I could make a difference if the war kept spiraling out of control. I felt like my country needed me, and so I started asking my father about how to enlist in the military. He recommended I talk to a Navy or Air Force recruiter. I wasn't interested in joining either the Navy or the Air Force. But when I came home from work at night and watched the evening news, I saw all of these soldiers running around Baghdad and Basra, Iraq, and I felt that more ground forces were what the military really needed. I also felt that maybe the army would man me up, so to speak, instilling certain expectations on me so that I would be more masculine. So I started talking to an army recruiter and signed up. After saying some quick and emotional goodbyes to my family, I officially enlisted in the army on the first day of October 2007 and reported to basic training the next morning. I hoped that I could help to bring as many of the soldiers that were sent to Iraq and Afghanistan home and to protect the civilians that were stuck living in these countries at the time. I felt that maybe if I did my job really well, I could really maximize our ability to know and understand insurgencies and conduct counterinsurgency strategies to speed things up. I was pretty hopeful that we could still make a difference there. During the first week of training, one of the drill sergeants who inventoried my personal belongings made comments about my phone. It was a bold fuchsia tone of hot pink that I loved. It never occurred to me not to bring it with me. It was pretty humiliating for me among the other recruits for a couple of days before training went on as normal. My role as an all-source intelligence analyst was to take all of the various types of information, what might sometimes get called raw intelligence, that get gathered from different sources or disciplines, such as interrogation reports or observation reports, or intercepted communications or satellite imagery, and to look at each different type and combine them together to produce reports or, all too often, slideshows. When I was deployed, I worked between 12 to 14 hours a day every day of the week, without any full days off. I also worked the night shift most of the time I was in Iraq, which was when most of the logistics, training, and combat operations would happen. So it would be busy with a lot of pressure on us throughout the shift. There would often be 40 to 100 emails for me to go through each night. Very intense and high stakes. My time off was short but I would often have trouble sleeping, especially with the sun beaming outside and the constant roar of generators and people passing by my trailer. I often spent a lot of time online with my laptop, when I could get a decent internet connection, of course. I didn't talk to very many people after a while. I was really starting to struggle with the weight of people dying around me every day and trying to fit into this projected persona of being a man. I was very anxious and often depressed. I was inundated with all these numbers and reports and coordinates and names and pictures. It became overwhelming after a while. 
At some point, the work that I did stopped feeling like an abstract and intellectual chore and began to become very real. These were real people living in real places. When we made mistakes planning operations, innocent people died. When we failed to see the small scale and the big picture as being connected, then our operations wouldn't flow very well and innocent people would get caught up in detention for weeks or years because of a minor mistake that we made. It often became a burden for me when we made mistakes or overlooked things like the Iraqi government detaining people under false pretenses and torturing their citizens because they wanted to make an example. A part of me still takes their suffering personally. The U.S. military has confirmed the authenticity of newly released video showing U.S. forces indiscriminately firing on Iraqi civilians. On Monday, the website WikiLeaks.org posted footage taken from a U.S. military helicopter in July 2007 as it killed 12 people and wounded two children. The voices on the tape appear to believe their targets are carrying weapons, but the footage unmistakably shows some of the victims holding camera equipment. The dead included two employees of the Reuters news agency. The Pentagon has never publicly released the footage and has previously cleared those involved of wrongdoing. WikiLeaks says it managed to de-encrypt the tape after receiving it from a confidential source inside the military who wanted the story to be known. The consequences did feel very vague at the time. A discharge from the military sounded bad. A couple years in prison sounded like a lifetime to me then. I expected the worst possible outcomes, but I didn't have a strong or concrete sense of what that might have entailed. In the abstract, I expected to be demonized and scrutinized. I expected to have every moment of my life examined for every single possible screw-up that I've ever made, for every flaw and blemish that I have, and to have them be used against me in the court of public opinion. I was especially afraid that my gender identity would be used against me and other people who suffered like I did. Looking back, I think my fears were based in reality. Chelsea was arrested by the U.S. Army's criminal investigation team on the 27th of May, 2010. Four days later, she was transferred to Camp Arifjan in Kuwait, where she would spend the next two months in solitary confinement. I didn't have any clue how I would be treated. At first, everything seemed pretty normal. I was living with other people in a tent for a couple of days. It wasn't until I was placed in maximum custody in what was basically like a large metal cage within a tent that things really got bad. I expected to be treated like any other military prisoner or detainee would be, with dignity and respect. I had no reason to expect otherwise until I was transferred to the cage. It was very hot, and it was dark in the tent. I remember you couldn't tell if it was day or night outside. The facility operated 24-7, so only the meals would give you a hint as to what time it was. Eventually, it all became a blur. It's difficult for me to explain in any detail. My memory of that time is very foggy. It's all blended together as a really personal mess. Being alone in that tent for hours on end without having any access to the outside world, I was left without any idea of what was going on anywhere. I barely knew what month it was, or how long I had been there. I hadn't started talking regularly to an attorney yet, 
and I didn't even know what I was being charged with exactly either. After a few weeks of living in this mental blur, I began to become entirely dependent on the staff that came to watch me and deliver food to me. They were my only connection to the outside world, but they were not very talkative or reliable, at least in retrospect. My mind was very malleable, and I was susceptible to believing all kinds of things because I didn't have any other information. So, if a guard told me I was going to be transferred to a ship off the coast of the Horn of Africa, it made sense to me and I totally believed it was possible. I had no idea if the rest of the world knew where I was, or where I was going. Anything could have happened. When I arrived at Marine Corps Base Quantico, I was basically subjected to the same conditions that I was in Kuwait, except it was a permanent air-conditioned building in Virginia. After being there for a couple of days, I was allowed to have visitors, which was very helpful to catching up on what had happened in the two or three months prior. I lived in a small eight by six foot cell, roughly two and a half by two meters. I was in a cell block with a bunch of other cells that were all empty. I was not allowed to talk to anyone else, even though there wasn't anybody near me. There were at least two Marines that watched me from behind a one-way reflective glass window at all times. I could see myself in the reflection of the window all day long. It was like a mirror right outside my cell. I wasn't allowed to have anything in my cell that I wasn't actually using. I would turn in most of my clothes at night. If I wanted to use the toilet, I had to ask for toilet paper, and I would have to return it when I was done. It was the same with toothbrushes, books, and sometimes even my glasses. I was not allowed to lie down or sleep during the duty day from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. I was only allowed to sit straight up on my bed and literally stare at the wall for hours on end. I was sometimes allowed to watch television during the evening, but I had no control over what was on. Even then, Marines would monitor what I was watching and would change the channel when anything like news or current event shows would come on. The entire experience was such a surreal nightmare. It just seemed comical to me. I mean, it was just an incredibly crazy experience. It just seems that you have to have a sense of humor in these kinds of situations, or else you won't be able to cope with painful or emotionally complicated situations. I viewed the junior enlisted Marines who watched me and escorted me to the shower and to the recreation pen every day as just being young people who were doing their job. Most of the younger ones were very recently out of high school, some with as little as three to six months in the Marine Corps. I didn't really interact with anyone else, so I never really developed an impression of the more senior people involved. The conditions in my cell were far beyond what is normally associated with solitary confinement. I needed permission to do anything in my cell. I was not allowed to move around the cell to exercise. I was not allowed to sit down with my back against the wall. I had no possessions inside the cell except when I was actually using something. I mean, I had a guard watch me brush my teeth every morning. The rules just seemed crazy. After more than three years of confinement, on the 21st of August 2013, Chelsea Manning was sentenced to 35 years in military prison for passing classified documents to WikiLeaks during 2009 and 2010. During her trial, she was banned from presenting her evidence or the motives behind her actions, 
including her claim that she was acting in the public interest in exposing military abuses. We asked Chelsea what happened in the moments after the verdict. My legal team was pretty upset. We were escorted into a tiny side room immediately after the hearing closed. There were six of us in this small room with white walls and no furniture, and two of the armed security guards at the door waiting until the courtroom was cleared. There was this ominous silence except for a sniffle from one of the lawyers who started to cry. It seemed that everyone in the room was afraid to speak, so I just started speaking. I began telling them that they did a great job and worked very, very hard to get to this point, and that I couldn't have asked for anything more from them. Why did I publicly announce I am Chelsea Manning, I am female, the day after the sentence? Well, for one, that's who I am. It made sense to me to tell people who I am as soon as I was given the opportunity to do so, which was the day after the trial finished. I had been holding back on my announcement only because of the trial. I wanted to do it sooner, but the lawyers advised against it. I felt honored to have a platform like national television available to me to make such an announcement. I felt proud of myself for making the decision to be honest about who I am with everyone I know. I also felt excited because I was getting nothing but an outpouring of support from the people who care about me. Fort Leavenworth is a very large but not a very densely populated military base in the rolling hills along the Kansas banks of the Missouri River. It's known for two things. The command and staff school that teaches military officers from all over the world, and the military prison. My initial impressions were based on the old castle prison building that had been closed down for several years now. I was expecting something from the movies. The reality is a lot simpler. On my first night here, I was pretty much like, okay, here I am. I laid looking up in the dark of my cell, and I stared at this dim, buzzing nightlight on the ceiling, and I decided to just blend in and work towards settling in here. Every single morning when I wake up, I walk over to the stainless steel toilet sink in my cell and look into the eyes of the woman in the reflection in the mirror and say, okay, you can deal with this. That's the moment each morning that I motivate myself for the day, and only that day. I think it's very important to break big, long things like years down into discrete and manageable units that can easily be conquered. In here, I'm just like anybody else. There's nothing special about me in comparison to anyone else who lives here. I get treated like anyone else, and I only expect that I get treated like anyone else. I wake up at about 4.30 a.m. each workday, or about 5.30 on weekends and holidays. When I'm working, I drink coffee and eat breakfast at the prison cafeteria. When I'm not working, I avoid coffee and take a nap after breakfast. Work begins at about 7 a.m. and lasts until about 4 p.m., with about an hour and a half break for lunch in between. When I get back to my cell in the evening, I go through the letters, cards, newspapers, and magazines from the day. I sometimes sort my laundry, get ready to either work out, with an emphasis on flexibility and cardio, or go to the library to exchange books or type up letters or legal documents. I also make the most out of my phone calls in the evening. I take a shower after working out and go to bed, usually after reading a book or a magazine for an hour or so. I work on a small woodwork team, and we make a lot of high-quality items. 
When we are lucky, we might make heirloom furniture for special orders. Coffee tables, beds, dressers, and cabinets. But we make a lot of standard stock items for bulk orders. Usually odds and ends like award plaques, picture frames, picture boards, and triangular flag cases for folded U.S. flags. It's a very fun job. Each team makes these items from start to finish, from rough lumber to the final finished product. So it feels like we're making something out of nothing on our own. It's not an assembly line. It's the dead heat of summer right now, so I can see the sky outside my window. It often swings wildly from an incredible clear azure hue of blue to the ominous rolling of puffy white thunderstorm clouds from the distance to the dark gray swirl of an intense Midwestern storm with flashes of bright white and blue lightning. There are fields of grass outside and between the fence that are very green and healthy, with a large variety of birds and little critters like squirrels and bugs running amok in them. I can also see the vast rolling hills and thick patches of hardwood trees typical of northeastern Kansas and western Missouri. In winter, everything turns a deep golden brown. The trees, the grass, the dirt, basically everything. As it begins to look really bland, nature throws in a light snowstorm to the mix, and everything gets blanketed with a bright and very pure white. It's never dull outside my window. But sure, there are less exciting things like buildings and razor wire but my mind doesn't register them anymore. I love doing cardio and flexibility exercises, and in spring, early summer, and early autumn, I get to go outside and run. Right now, it's the dead heat of summer, and it's just too hot and humid to run all that much. But as soon as it starts to cool off, I'll get back into the rhythm. I requested for medical treatment in August 2013, but I didn't start treatment until February 2015, In December of 2014, I started wearing cosmetics, but that was really just a Band-Aid. It's a very strange reality that taking hormones has made clear to me. I can feel emotions much more immediately and deeply. Before, I used to just put my feelings in this little box in my head and say, I'll deal with you later. But now, when I'm feeling sad, I cry. When I'm feeling angry, I need to take a step away and cool down for a minute. When I'm feeling happy, I laugh and get excited. And when I'm feeling lonely, I reach out to someone that I care about. Life is a much richer and fuller experience for me as a person. Physically, my skin is softer, and I guess that it's a lot more sensitive because I can feel things that I never noticed before. Like the way the texture of fabrics might run against my skin, or the air circulating through my clothes, or the smooth and intense cold of a door handle. These feelings are very real to me, and I wouldn't want to get rid of them. I'm committed to learning as much as I can. I have a lot of little goals and objectives that I set for myself every day and every week, like writing this essay for a college course, or reading about this particular topic, or focusing on learning on a particular style or technique of doing something. But as a whole, they all coalesce into a goal of enriching my knowledge, understanding, and connection with the world and people around me. I've always enjoyed music. I love all different kinds of music, but I have a particular taste for what a lot of people call EDM, or electronic dance music. But more fundamentally, I love any music that has a good beat. It's just I prefer the creativity that digital and electronic music can offer us. I think it's a fantastic medium to work with and to listen to. I get the most hope from the letters and cards that I receive from all kinds of unique people. I get letters from queer and trans kids a lot, 
which I think is amazing just because it's a long-forgotten medium to write a letter. When I first entered into confinement, I didn't know where to write the return address or the sending address or where to put a stamp. So I can only imagine how important it must be for a kid to learn how to do something so unusual and unfamiliar in this digital era. It means a lot for me to get letters from these kids who feel so connected with me. They inspire me to keep going and give me the most amount of hope. I've actually imagined a few times what it'd be like if I could travel back in time and speak to myself as a teenager. I know what she was feeling deep down inside. I know all the fears that she had, all the vulnerabilities she was hiding. I would want to grab her by the hand and tell her that everything is going to be okay. I would tell her that there is nothing wrong with you and that you are more loved and appreciated than you realize. I would tell her that she can be a happier and healthier person if she stays true to herself, like I have finally been able to figure out. I wouldn't push her too far. I can't even tell myself who she is, but I try to start that conversation and guide her in the right direction. These were just the things that I so badly needed to hear from someone when I was younger. That we are all human and can be loved and valued unconditionally. That was actress Michelle Henley voicing the words of Chelsea Manning for Amnesty's In Their Own Words. Chelsea is still in Fort Leavenworth Military Prison, Kansas. It'll be 2045 before she's released if she serves her full sentence. Amnesty is calling for Chelsea to be freed now. She was overcharged as a warning to others, while the abuses she reported have never been investigated. In 2015, after she took the army to court, Chelsea won the right to become the first military prisoner to access hormone treatment to transition in prison. But she still can't grow her hair and is forced to adhere to military grooming standards for males, so that's her current battle. Meanwhile, the US Army is looking at reassessing how trans people in the forces are treated, in no small part thanks to Chelsea. So what does she look forward to after she served her sentence? I feel like I've been stored away for all this time without a voice or the ability to show my love and support to the folks who need it. I feel like there's so much of a contribution to society that I could be making. I spend every day looking forward to the hope that one day I can give that a go. I'm Anna Bacciarelli. You've been listening to In Their Own Words, a podcast series from Amnesty International. Thanks to Michelle Hendley for reading, and of course to Chelsea Manning for sharing her story. Please remember to subscribe to hear more stories from human rights activists around the world. Until next time.